0: Well, good morning, everybody. And to those of you watching online, a very hearty good morning to you. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Trent. I have the privilege of being the pastor here, and if you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to open to the book of Matthew chapter 5. If you have a physical Bible in front of you, you can also stick your finger in Matthew 19, just a few pages to the right. If you're a user of the Bible app, please feel free um, to open that app and find our live event and track along. There will be scriptures there, sermon notes, any number of things to help you, and uh, we're going we're gonna to jump right in. Did, did, um, did anybody ever have this? when they were younger, particularly in that 12, 13 range, um, where you were still um, young enough to not know any better, but mom and dad maybe expected you, where you you brought something up. You brought up a topic or a a thing of conversation um, that that mom or dad afterwards said, excuse me, we don't talk about that in polite company. Anybody uh, bring that up? Just go ahead, raise your hand real high. Yep. Okay. A few of you in here are honest enough. The rest of you Either you didn't talk when you were 12 or 13 or you're lying, one of the two, I'm not sure which. Uh, that was certainly true for me. You know, hey, this is polite conversation. We don't talk about these things. This is what it feels a little bit like to me, this particular section of Matthew chapter five. So just to catch everybody up and drag us forward through the text here, um, Jesus has a group of followers, people who have experienced significant brokenness in their own lives, physical, relational um, Uh, uh, spiritual trauma, any number of things. There's darkness all over and he speaks to them. He sets the kingdom down through healings and any number of things. And then he speaks to them and says, I've got good news. And the good news is this. Blessed are those um, who are of poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Blessed are those who mourn. And he goes through any number of, of descriptions of those who are really well off. And then he says to that exact same group of people, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, so go live like it. And then he drops a profound teaching in in chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, unless your genuine goodness, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless your goodness is beyond simply appearances and actions, that you will miss the kingdom altogether. And then he starts into this stuff that you don't talk about in polite conversation, anger desires that are deviant and sometimes even cultivated to greater deviance. And then today, divorce. This is where we are in Matthew chapter 5. I think, though, what he's been doing, based upon things that I know in my own life and in conversations that I've get, got to head with you, Jesus is doing more than just exposing some things in our life, although he has certainly done that. He is also creating a sense of expectancy because when he says you've heard it said don't murder I'm telling you don't be angry. Some of us in faith have said if there's a life out there that I can live Without anger being the the utmost influence in my life. I want in on that You've heard it said don't commit adultery I'm telling you the one who looks at a woman with lustful intent He's committed adultery already in his heart with her If there's a life out there where those desires which are in me or come at me via temptation, if there's a life out there that I can live where that is not the dominant or gravitational force in my life, that's a life I want. Give me some of that. He's creating a sense of expectancy, not only exposing some things in us, but creating a sense of expectancy. So to get us going here into this topic that we don't talk about in polite conversation. I want to do a very brief survey. I did it in the other two services would like to know how it compares in this particular room. How many of you and I'm talking about first degree of separation. You, um, or no degree of you, um, maybe your folks or your kids, somebody really, really tightly connected to you, have experienced um, divorce in, 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 in a really tight-knit situation? Very, very close. Raise your hand, keep it up. Now take a moment and look around the room. Two-thirds, maybe. This is about what it was in the first service. Second service was slightly below that. Here's the thing. Um, this is a part of our culture. The, the majority of the people in the room this morning, in all three services, the majority, have experienced it in, in, uh, either personally or uh, in, in kind of one degree of separation. It is a part of our culture, and it was a part of their culture as well as Jesus taught. So here's the thing. This is why we talk about it, because it is a part of of our of our life. So how do we jump in here chapter 5 verse 31? It was also said Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, before we run away from that, um, previously, he's been quoting a, a one of the Ten Commandments. This is not one of the Ten, uh, but what it is is it a summary statement of teaching. And if you're a writer in your Bible, um, you can write out beside there Deuteronomy chapter 24, the first four verses, one through four, um, because that's what Jesus is drawing from as he summarizes this, okay? So Deuteronomy 24, that's where he's drawing from. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman uh, commits adultery. Here's the question. In light of the polite conversation that we're having now, (laughs) what is Jesus doing? What's he doing? Three things. Number one, he's recognizing that there is brokenness in our world revolving around this issue there is brokenness in our world as it regards specifically the topic of divorce. The, 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 there is a difference between what Jesus and his cultural context, what he was describing there, and what you and I um, experience today as divorce, but the pain is just as real um, as it was then, as it is today. Um, back then, uh, just to describe it, to give it a little bit uh, of thing, the, the teaching from Deuteronomy 24 was um, you could send away. That was literally the phrase to send away. You could send away um, a wife. Um, From the Old Testament, wives didn't have a whole lot of um, rights in this particular thing. As the Roman culture took over in the first century, there were more rights given to women, but it was still a sending away. And you basically, ladies, you only had three options. first one was uh, to be taken in by a generous relative. But just think for a moment about your own life and your own household. You ready to take your sister or brother or anybody else in? But because what would happen then was uh, you, as the uh, wife who was sent away, you would be taken in by a relative, but you would function in the household, not as kin, but as a servant. So you were a glorified maid. Or you could Remarry. And this is where the analog is a little closer to his day is ours, because if there was a remarriage based upon um, the the cultural setting, if there was a remarriage, uh, that husband would take that wife in, but would take that wife in, and she would experience her life and the marriage as she is damaged goods. Some of you know what that feels like. Maybe it's because something that was said to you, or maybe it's a way that you are treated, but nonetheless, there, there is a, a sense in which you've got a bag full of shame and you're carrying around, I'm damaged goods. Or the third option is that you, um, as a, the spouse who was sent away, the wife that was sent away in particular, you would become a prostitute. And you can imagine how that would end for her. That was then. Today, um today it is it is different. Um, men and women have very different rights than they did back then, um, but the pain is still very real. There is a rending, if you will, a ripping a tearing at every level, relationally between the spouses. If there are kids involved, there is a a, a tearing, a ripping, a rending parentally. Which kid's going to be where? What's custody look like? Are they going to have it on your weekend? Or is this going to, is it first, third, and fifth? What are we going to do? What about Christmas? A, a parental tearing. There's financial implications. There are um, other uh, kind of social implications. Whose friends are going to take uh, whose side as this goes on? There is pain for every person And at every level, and folks, it is pain that lasts for a lifetime. The the scars are still there, and and the the pain may subside, but it leaves these kinds of wounds. So um, I had a conversation with one of our uh, ladies this week. She just so happened to be up here, and and, um, I knew that divorce had been part of her story. And I said, hey, what would you want to say to me as a pastor? And this is what she said, it's worse than a death. Now, I promise you, I have heard that over and over and over again. I heard it in my own family as my nuclear family growing up went through this. It's worse than a death. Because in death, you have a sense of loss. You've got the grief surrounding the sense of loss. But also, uh, excuse me, compounded with that in divorce, you not only have the sense of loss, all the normal things that were financial struggle and, and all the implications that come with that as well. But also, you have a sense of rejection. Indeed, you have loss, but you also, the grief of that, but you also have the grief of the sense of rejection. It's, it's worse. It's worse than death. And, and people say, um, well, you know, this is a, a good choice now, but my kids, they'll bounce back. Church family, listen to me. The wounds and the pain last longer and have further ramifications, deeper ramifications than you ever could have predicted. Kids don't just bounce back. I was 22 when things went sideways in my own family. 20 years later, found myself in counseling. 20 years, two decades worth to work some things out that were related to that. You don't just bounce back. The, the pain is very, very real. The brokenness brings that kind of pain to different people in, on all different levels. It's the the pain is the the same, even though the context may be different. There is a disintegration of what God has decreed. So, in in um, the the Bible, the way that it talks about it, that the the two shall become one flesh. We'll read it um, here in just a second. Um, But the two shall become one flesh. That's integration, and so divorce then is the disintegration of this relationship. I told you to stick your finger in Matthew chapter nineteen. I'm going to read uh, verse 3 here, uh, following down. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Integration. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Integration. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, disintegration. Divorce is a disintegration of what God has decreed. It was rooted in creation. And God says it's not good to pull these kinds of things apart. There is a rending, a ripping, a tearing of all sorts of things there. So as a pastor, here's what I recognize. I recognize that there are times when the brokenness of a situation seems so overwhelming. Some of you have walked through that some of you may be living in it right now and the brokenness seems so overwhelming and because the brokenness seems so overwhelming the choices that are before you seem inevitable or maybe they are maybe they are inevitable because people are making choices that you you don't have any say in J- Jesus referenced that references that kind of inevitability when he says if you um if you uh, marry again, you're forcing her, you're making her commit adultery. He's, he's referencing that kind of inevitability. Like people, you see it and you're like, oh no, this is, I guess it's just going this way. But Jesus knows the pain and the chaos that comes from this. He knows the pain and he knows the chaos that's coming from this. This disintegration, he recognizes that there is brokenness in the world. Some people ask the question, and it 's a fair question: Are there appropriate avenues to pursue a divorce and the Bible allows for three and i just I wanted to say these, not because um, I want to um, encourage people towards any of these i just I just want to say that the, this these are paths down which people have walked before and and the Bible allows divorce I would say it this way that Divorce is allowed because of the brokenness in the world. Divorce is allowed, but it is never, ever commended, ever. But on that note, there are three reasons. Number one, adultery, as is mentioned here. Secondly, um, abandonment. Uh, In adultery, um, the one spouse chooses to act as if the marriage is over and they have wed themselves to a different person. And the power of that has the power to dissolve the, the marriage covenant. In, in, a, in abandonment, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, is where Paul is referencing this. And he's, he said, man, there may come a point where an unbelieving spouse says to a believing spouse, hey, you and your crazy faith about a guy who died and rose again, we, I can't handle this anymore. I'm out of here. There may come that point. Just recognizing the brokenness that's in the world, there may come that point. And, and if that spouse walks He says, the one, the believing spouse is freed from that. And then um, kind of in our modern day parlance, um, we typically add one uh, just for clarity's sake, abuse. So we've got adultery, abandonment, and abuse. And abuse is merely an extension of abandonment because what abuse says in that moment, the moment I lay my hands on my spouse, what that says is, you are of no value to me. And again, the power of that statement can, can um, dissolve uh, the marriage covenant. So it is allowed, but it is never committed. And listen to me, if, if you are thinking about this, if it's spun in your mind or if you feel like the cloud is kind of hovering right there over your head, here's what I would say to you. Divorce is never a solution to your problems. It is merely an exchange of the problems that you have. And anybody in this room who has walked that path or been affected by that would say the exact same thing. Divorce is not an exchange, excuse me, is not a solution to your problems. It is an exchange of the problems that you have. Jesus is recognizing that there is brokenness in the world. The second thing that he's doing is that he is dealing with the root issues of all of this. So I'm going to back up to uh, chapter 19 again. And again, in verse three, Jesus came up to him, tested him by, excuse me, the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, just skip down um, to verse seven. And they said to him, well, hey, in light of all that creation talk, thank you, Jesus. But why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Why is that? The case Jesus is dealing with some root issues. There's a cultural context of what he's doing here. There were two particular schools of thought. Um, not that you need to know their names, but one is the school of Hillel and one is the school of Shammai. And um, uh, the school of Hillel, they took a, a very, very broad and liberal understanding. In Deuteronomy 24, it says, if you are going to divorce um, your wife and send her away, you need to give her a certificate of divorce that protects her in some ways, but you can do so for uncleanness. And that word uncleanness, this this particular school um, captained by uh, Rabbi Hillel, that particular school took uncleanness to mean any number of things. So ladies, just listen. Um, In those days, and there's a whole body of rabbinic literature around this, in those days, a husband could send you away because you burned the toast. Or because he didn't like your dress. Or because of any number of other small, pathetic, trivial things. He could send you away if he found in his mind anything unclean about you that was the school of Hillel. The school of Shammai narrowed that significantly. They took um, uncleanness to mean what it meant basically throughout the Old Testament, um, that kind of sexual impropriety. Jesus picks this up back in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, uh, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her, excuse me, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So uh, except on the ground of sexual immorality, the word that Jesus... Jesus uses there in the Greek is spelled, you ready? P-O-R-N-E-I-A, porneia. Anybody? You good? You got that? Okay. So Jesus in that sense is picking sides. He's saying, look, there, there is a meaning to words here. Words do have meaning and they have consequences. They matter. And so to to, to broaden the definition so I can do whatever I want to. No, that's, that is, that's not what we're doing here. There are specific circumstances under which the brokenness um, may lead to divorce. But here's the thing. Jesus is, is not only picking sides in this particular conversation or in this particular theological debate. The biggest thing he's doing is picking a fight with the cultural assumption that marriages are going to fail. In the Old Testament days, and you, again, there's all sorts of historical stuff surrounding this, um, people ex- uh, mar- they expected marriages to fail and for people to be sent away. In first century Rome, divorce was rampant. You and I would uh, say there was a significant no-fault divorce kind of culture. And the Jesus is picking a fight with, he is taking a side, but he's mainly picking a fight with the the assumption that divorces will, will just be a part of everybody's story. Church family, listen to me. Let's let him pick a fight with us on that too. We got some younger married folks in the room. We got folks who've been married longer. Let's let him pick a fight with us to say, it doesn't have to be that way. Just because the culture is going that way, just because uh, everybody we know has walked through it at some point doesn't mean it has to be part of our story. That's the cultural context. The scriptural context, I want to back up to chapter five and just point out, this is how smart Jesus is here. Um, When we say he's dealing with root issues, so again, in chapter five, he says you need a different kind of goodness, a different kind of righteousness available. That's chapter five, verse 20. And then he jumps right into this very uh, first topic of impolite conversation, anger. Anger's first. And then after that, These desires that are deviant and sometimes cultivated into even greater deviance. Lust is how the Bible talks about them. And then divorce. Anger. Deviant desires. And then divorce. Anger. Deviant desires. Do you see what he's doing here? How many people would never get to this third particular section if they dealt with the first two? How many stories do you have in your life? How many stories of those who are around you if people had dealt with their anger, their contempt and their malice? If they had dealt with their deviant desires and creation of a fantasy world that they asked somebody else to live up to, if they had dealt with those things, they would have never gotten to this conversation on divorce. He's dealing with root issues, anger, lust. Let's deal with those first. And then after that, Then after that, we can talk about divorce. Back in chapter 19, um, when they ask him, verse 7, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce in the center way? He said back to them, it was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed you. Notice, he didn't commend it. He just allowed you, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. He's saying, um, the hardness of your heart is the problem. And if you're in the room today and you could tell your story, about your experience with divorce at some point my guess is it would come up where you would say either me or my spouse we just weren't willing to give it anymore we couldn't do anymore and or they just wouldn't step into this they would not move they would not go get the help that they needed they would not pursue these resources that were made available to us and what we have there is an expression of the hardness of the human heart and by identifying the hardness of the heart as the problem, Jesus is, is keeping his agenda front and center. Because what he is after, folks, is the transformation of our hearts. It, the, the, starting at the very core of who we are, he wants to renovate us down here. And in doing so, he knows that some of this other stuff will begin to take care of itself. Transformation, um, beginning way deep down inside of us pastorally speaking, and because Jesus recognizes the brokenness in the world, and certainly because um, we ourselves have seen it. I just want to say that it, it, it does not mean that divorce might not happen in the end. But what it does mean is that divorce will be less frequent, that's for sure. And if it does happen, it will look and sound a lot different and have a different attitude to it. Jesus is dealing with root issues. Third thing he's doing is he is holding to God's ideal and intention. Again, back in verse, excuse me, in chapter 19, he points um, to, to in verse four, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And on down, the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but they are one flesh. Jesus is, is dealing with this. So marriage is the divine portrait of love to the world. Like God wants to use marriage um, and in your neighborhoods and in your friend circles and at at the baseball field and a hundred other places. He wants to use your marriage to picture his love for other people. Paul picks this up in Ephesians chapter 5. He has this whole beautiful teaching on how husbands and wives relate to one another. Listen, uh, people get wrapped around the axle because of some of the words that are used in that passage. But here's the deal. He says to wives, hey, listen, encourage and affirm godly leadership in your husband. Husbands, lay your life down immediately and certainly and consistently for her good to nurture her and to cherish her. And then he says... Man, don't you understand that the two, see, he made, these, he made male and female. Don't you understand he brought them together. The two shall become one flesh. And this is a great mystery. And then he says, and I'm telling you, it's Christ in the church. That's the deal. Marriage is the divine portrait of love. And because it is, some of the things that we say to ourselves or some of the things that get said to us, they need to get filtered through that whole idea of there is an ideal that God is holding to and there is an intention that God has. There, there is a, a picture that God wants us to paint with our marriages. So some people come along and they say something like this to me. Um, these are some of the reasons or excuses that get set out. God was never in this marriage in the first place. I mean... We flew to Vegas, it was Elvis in the chapel, drive-thru deal, like God was never a part of this picture. So why would I, if he was never a part of it, then psh, not now. And if you were sitting in my office and this is what you said to me, this is what I would say back. You may not have been thinking about God when you said I do, but I promise you God was thinking about you. And because he was what he but he defined his ideal, and what he intends for you, it still holds. Some folks, um, they've stepped in and listened. This is particular, uh, in particular, for those who kind of are knocking on that 45, 50 door midlife. Um, the, kid, the kids are gone now, and I'm ready for something different. We are ready for something different. You sit down across the table and you're not quite sure who you're eating lunch with or dinner with anymore. And if you were in my office, this is what I would say to you. The kids are gone now. You're ready for something different. That's how I would say it. You you can sit down at lunch or dinner and not have, you know, or I want you more milk or whatever it is, right? Um, you, You don't have to wake up in the middle of the night because somebody's screaming in the other room. The kids are gone now. You're ready for something different. There is a next stage of your life that you can step into and you can do so together. You don't have to call it quits and sail off in different ways. Uh, A a, a third one that comes along. Under this idea that marriage is a divine portrait of love, people come along and they say, well, she changed. He changed. Can we just say on the front end that I mean, you're supposed to you're supposed to, when you get into that intimate of a relationship, there should be some, some dynamics at work that make you change. Um, in the very first service, there was a couple sitting right over here, and uh, I, I knew, I, I wasn't quite sure they had been married um, as long as they had. I knew it was pretty good. I said, hey, how long y'all been married? 66 years next month. Incredible. So I said to the wife, I said, so has he changed in the past 66 years? She just lowered her mask and kind of grinned like, yeah. So I said to the husband, has she changed? He goes, I refuse to answer that. Good. That's good. That's smart. That's smart. But the truth is, is that if you've been married 15 or 20 years, listen, you've probably been married to two or three people. For those who've been married 20 or 30 years, is that truth? And along the way, yes, they change. Yes, you change. But that's just what marriage is supposed to do. It is a portrait of divine love. Do you think God is loving us in a way that lets us stay the same? Of course not. Another thing that comes in is, um, and again, this is, I think, a unique temptation to those at midlife, although it is Across the board a temptation in our day and in our age. Hey, I've I found my soulmate. I found my soulmate. It's not the person I'm married to, it's that person over there. We work together. And she's my soul, he's my soulmate. Listen to me. What you have done, and I promise you this, if you were sitting in my office, I would look you dead in the eye. So let me do that as much as I can from the platform today. I would look you dead in the eye and say this you have found infatuation. That's what you have found. And by every study that's out there, neurological and otherwise, by every study that is out there, effatuation, you got about a 12 to 18 month run of butterflies. And then you figure out that the grass is not greener on the other side. It's the same grass. Don't throw, listen to me, don't throw away two or three decades of your life and investment and intimacy For 12 months of a dopamine hit, don't do it. And if you are tempted to that, then kill that off and kill it off today. The last thing sometimes people say is that I I fell out of love with a person or we grew apart or however it expresses itself. And I want to come back to you and say, listen to me, um, God did not fall in love with you. You did not fall in love with God. You made a choice. He made a choice to love you. Love is a choice. Infatuation, that's what we fall into. There's attraction, and like I said, there's butterflies. There's all sorts of things that happen. And God uses that process to bring us together. But love is a choice that we get to make. And so if we have made choices that have put distance between us over the course of the years, guess what? We can also make choices that will bring us back together. Marriage is a divine portrait of love. And we can make choices that paint that portrait accurately. And again, just pointing out where marriage sits in in the divine plan. It, It is the final act of creation, if you will, his crowning moment. You got stars and sky and land and sea and then animals come along and then there's male and female and that's in genesis chapter one page one of the bible page two we get a little bit deeper dive into this and what we find is what that at a, there's a moment where there is a man and then and then there is a woman and it's not just man and woman then he brings the two together marriage is the final act of creation it's what he gives to us. So where's hope here? And this is where I want to leave. Uh, so where is hope for anybody who has experienced this, for anybody who's tempted by it, for anybody who's been wounded by it, where's hope? Here's what I would say. There is nothing that cannot be redeemed. The causes of the situation in which you find yourself, the effects of the situation in which you found yourself, um, there is nothing that cannot be, there is no, uh, nothing that dissolves a marriage that is the unforgivable sin, folks. There is nothing that the cross of Jesus can't speak forgiveness to and that the tomb, the empty tomb of Jesus cannot bring freedom to. Nothing. There is nothing that cannot be redeemed. And secondly, there there is nothing that prevents you from moving forward. Jesus' original audience here, man, they were stacked with brokenness, just full of it. You can see the people carrying around marks of their shame. And yet he speaks to them as if God had an intention for their life. And some of you, you've got a whole bundle of things that you're carrying around right now. And I want you to hear me say, Jesus is speaking to you because he has an intention for your life. There is nothing that prevents you from moving forward. There is a power in the kingdom. There is a a resource available in the kingdom of God through trust in Jesus to transform you and probably to, change your, to transform your circumstances. There's nothing that prevents you from moving forward. Nothing. That's where our hope is. So what do we do? We offer ourselves and our lives in our marriages, and our shame, and our temptations, and our struggles, and our miscommunications, and our bitterness, and the junk we're carrying around, we offer all of those things to Jesus. Some of us find ourselves mired in sin, we can offer that to Jesus, and the cross promises forgiveness. Some of us find ourselves sinned against, and we can offer that to Jesus too, because the cross promises forgiveness that we can learn to forgive others. Some of us have circumstances, situations, problems that we're facing that we think there is no way that the power, that there that I don't have it in me. There is no power in me to get through this. You're right. But there is the power of an empty tomb where Jesus brings freedom to you and to me. So we're going to have a moment just to reflect and pray. A moment where you maybe, for the very first time, want to offer yourself to Jesus. But certainly, if you've given your life to Christ and you would consider yourself a Christian, a moment where you just say, God, I don't know what all had my name on it, but here are some things I know that I need to say to you. We'll have a moment to reflect, and I want to invite you to bow your heads. If you're at home, it may seem weird, but go ahead and bow your head, close your eyes, and just... Take a second and say the things to God that you need to say. Maybe it's related to your own sin. Or maybe it's the sin of those who have sinned against you. Maybe there's a shame that is so heavy a burden that it feels like chains. Maybe it's a temptation. Call it quits. Check out. Just take a moment. Say what you need to say to the Lord. Now hear this one more time. There is hope in Jesus because there is nothing causes or effects that cannot be redeemed and there is nothing that prevents you from moving forward in the power and the resources available in the kingdom and so Father over every life here and over everyone watching at home I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would bring healing to deep wounds you would bring clarity and perspective to moments of struggle And you would bring a sense of strength, a renewed commitment to the covenant that many are in. And God, for everyone who feels like they're backed against the wall, hope, hope. That's what we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.